0: and welcome to the What About the Canadians podcast. My name is Shauna.
1: And my name is Ashley. And we're two rookie historians bringing to you the Canadian history you should know.
0: This season, we'll be discussing World War I through a Canadian perspective.
1: More specifically, we will examine the battles the Canadians served in.
0: Okay, (laughs) we're back.
1: (laughs) After... It's been a
0: little while.
1: (laughs) An unplanned hiatus.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Man, life gets in the way, doesn't it? Oh my gosh. Yes, it does. But
1: um, (laughs) like we said on our Instagram, summer is very short in Canada. So we're going to make the most of it while we can.
0: (laughs) Yeah, you know, though, this 30 degree weather that we had today, I'm just, I'm kind of done with it. I don't want fall, but like a nice... 21, I'd be totally happy with. This 30 degree is just doing me in.
1: It has been such a hot summer. Like, I've barely been outside because I don't want to. <laughs> yeah.
0: Oh, I know. It's been crazy.
1: But I, on the other hand, am ready for sweater weather because i Oh, a- I
0: know. You're all into that. Yes. I am a <laughs> Sweater basic. weather, you got your <laughs> pumpkin spice latte and your halloween decorations oh i already have a few of them up that doesn't surprise me
1: (laughs) i'm a basic witch (laughs) shauna
0: me on the other hand i hate pumpkin spice and i decorate on october 31st so we're a little bit different (laughs) totally different (laughs) (laughs)
1: All right. um, So to pick up where we last left off, we left off three months ago. I know. I know. I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, We last left off uh, with the Canadians winning at the Battle of Vimy Ridge. Woo! Yes, it was such a great
0: episode to record, because <laughs> it was like, oh, we finally got a victory! <laughs> yes, finally! <laughs> what we've been waiting for. Yeah, totally. And now, is it going to keep going, or are we going to be have more, having more disappointments?
1: Well, Shauna, we are into 1917, and as we know, Ooh. the war doesn't end until November of 1918. So. Got a
0: little ways to go still. We're like halfway
1: through. <laughs> <laughs> uh, There's a
0: lot going on in those couple of years.
1: Sure is. Sure is.
0: All right. Um, so we're going to
1: start off a little easy. We're going to give you another world update because there is a lot going on that impacts <laughs> our Canadians on the Western Front. So while the Canadians were preparing for an attack at Vimy Ridge um, from November 1916 up through April of 1917, the people of Russia were preparing for their own battle. So let's talk about the February Revolution.
0: I feel like this has been everywhere in podcasts lately, or maybe like in the last year, like everybody's talking about Russia there was, it was on lore. I heard some on Behind the Bastards. Um, I think there's been a lot on, not Midnight Library. What's the other one that I like? There's another one that I can't remember, but I've heard so much about the czars and the revolution and it's just crazy. There's so much information out there.
1: Yeah, I have not been listening to podcasts, but that doesn't <laughs> surprise me considering what's going on today. Uh, yeah, yeah, I, it's in the news. I mean, this history kind of plays into it, so I it makes sense for sure. Mm-hmm. So, touching on that topic, uh, Russia had been governed by a series of autocratic tsarist rulers dating back to the reign of Ivan the Third, aka Ivan the Terrible, in the 16th century. So largely a rural agrarian society, the Russian economy was built on the back of peasants and serfs. Now, really what peasants are, um, they're just a group of farmers that are legally bound to the land. Um, The primary difference is that one works for the state um, and the other one works for a landlord. So
0: like It's like public versus private sector work. (laughs) Um, So I thought peasants just meant poor people. Well, they're both poor. I think serfs by far had it worse. I think peasants are just like a little bit of a step up. Oh, I, I totally thought the peasants were just like, oh, those poor people over there. You know, like monarchs would be like, oh, poor peasants. I didn't realize that they were like bound to the land. I thought it could just be anybody that was poor.
1: Oh, I don't know. Um, But at least in Russia at the time, this is kind of what it meant. So in 1861, Tsar Alexander II freed the serfs and forced the landlords to forfeit two thirds of their land, where the freed serfs were allowed to establish village communes to live and work. Um, But essentially, they were forced to make redemption payments to their former landlords for the land that they had to give up. The Tsar kind of naively expected the new communes to produce enough like agricultural products to feed both themselves and financially support the state. But <laughs> neither can actually be accomplished as the lords, they're a little sneaky, like they transferred the least fertile of their lands to the freed serfs. And so in turn, there really weren't enough laborers to continue working the fertile lands of the lord. So the peasants often defaulted on their payments and were forced to migrate into the cities where demand for laborers at the factories were high, while the lords, incapable of adapting to the shift, lost their wealth and sold their lands to avoid insolvency. So it totally- Way to go,
0: lords. It totally backfired. <laughs>
1: So progress in industrialization uh, was initially slow in Russia compared to its Western counterparts. Uh, Russia was kind of like initially hesitant to accept foreign capital investment and trade, as the czar didn't really want to relinquish control of the co- of, like of the economy, and they created like a lot of red tape to restrict any of these sorts of transactions. So in turn, by restricting a free economy. Russian cartels began monopolizing industry and with their power unchecked, the cost of living became hyperinflated while the wages of the disenfranchised working class was low. So this dissatisfaction among the working class gave rise to the acceptance of radical socialist ideologies the most recognizable coming from economists and philosophers Karl Marx and Frederick Engels. So also known as Marxism, this ideology promoted the rise of the proletariat, which Marx defined as the modern working class, a class of laborers who lived only so long as they find work and who work only so long as their labor increases capital for the bourgeoisie, a capitalist class that owned the means of production. Does this not like bring you back to grade nine social studies?
0: (laughs) Yeah, I think I was just transported back to Miss Voboda's social studies classroom. I sat on the right hand side of it. I can picture it perfectly.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I too sat on the right-hand side for my social studies class during our Russian studies.
0: <laughs> <laughs> That's weird that we both remember that. Totally.
1: I I think it's because like we, we had to have spent at least a month learning about Russia. It feels like it was long.
0: Yeah, yeah, I think so. I I don't know if I was particularly interested at that point, but oh. <laughs> I <okay>. don't know. <laughs> Well, I'll give you a little refresher anyway. Thank you.
1: All right. So we're going to pick up at January 22nd, 1905. Here, protesters marched on the Winter Palace seeking justice for their horrendous living conditions. Soldiers opened fire and killed over 200 people. In Russia, this day would become known as Bloody Sunday. Now, to sort of make amends with his people, Tsar Nicholas II, who was obviously the Tsar at this time, established uh, what they call is the Duma. And this was an elected legislative body of the lower house of Russian parliament. Now, the power of the Duma was limited and unstable at best as the Duma was repeatedly dissolved by the Tsar until a conservative Duma that supported the government reforms was elected.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Democracy for you. Yeah, so not quite democracy. Just, like, (laughs) veiled very thinly. Yeah, exactly. Uh, (laughs) So by the time we get to the fourth Duma,
1: they were conservative. I mean, yay, hooray, but... (laughs) <laughs> they actually began to oppose, like, the general incompetence of the government during World War One, and they became the voice of opposition to the Tsarist regime. So, <laughs> sorry, Nicholas, it well, didn't work out for you.
0: Yeah, not quite. Actually, I was just looking it up, and I think it's unobscured. If anybody's really interested in... Russia around World War One and a little bit before then. He does, I think it's mostly on um, Rasputin, but the Unobscured podcast talks a lot
1: oh, about that. Yeah, I started that season, I think it's season three maybe,
0: and I never finished it, but I should go yeah, back. Yeah, it's it's quite good. And um, Behind the Bastards does one on Tsar Nicholas III, I believe. So if you guys are interested in that time period, those are... To to really check out, uh, it'd be Nicholas II. I don't think there oh. was a Nicholas III. Oh, during World War One. Oh, oops. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know that last czar, whatever his name. Yeah, is. it was Nicholas II. <laughs> okay. Uh,
1: okay. So, um, just going back. So, what is it that I mean by the incompetence of the government? Now, it means on the war front, soldiers were ill-fed, ill-equipped, and ill-prepared. Now, in the fall of 1915, Tsar Nicholas II took command of the army, hoping to inspire his soldiers. But this backfired. He was viewed as having abandoned the home front while people back home starved and were overworked. Now, on the front lines, he was blamed for the losses on the battlefield. The German army, as we know, was just too sophisticated and well-equipped in comparison. And this resulted in Russian casualties numbering 1.6 million, with another 1.1, sorry, 1 million missing and 2 million as POWs.
0: <laughs> like, Russia
1: wasn't doing well. Wow. No, that's horrid. I mean, granted, their numbers were bigger, but that's still like, yeah,
0: that's a lot. Insane. They so, have a comf- pretty
1: rough history. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, on February 18th, 1917, and I should say February because that is what happened on our calendar, but on the Russian calendar, it's actually March. I guess they had different calendars at the time.
0: I think I- they were on the is it the Gregorian calendar? Maybe. Yeah, I, th- I think that was it. Sure. Anyway, <laughs> let's, go, let's go with that. Their calendars were different until sometime in the 20th century, and then they switched over. That's right. <laughs> so
1: on February 18th, laborers employed at the Putilov plant, which was Russia's largest supplier of ammunition, demanded higher wages to help offset inflationary cost. Now, they were denied a pay increase and their employers locked them out. And this sparked a huge outrage amongst other industrial workers in the region. So then on February 23rd, International Women's Day, thousands of textile workers joined the protests demanding equal rights and fair prices for bread. Now, Russian soldiers were ordered to fire on the 200,000 protesters in Petrograd, but they refused. Now recognizing that his his regime had begun to dismantle, Tsar Nicholas II had to abdicate. Like, you can't be in power if your soldiers turn against you. I'm sorry, it's just not going to work. So it left the Duma to form a provisional government. Now, the German army took advantage of this period of instability by smuggling an exiled man by the name of Vladimir Lenin leader of the Bolshevik party back into Russia. Now he was protected by a squad of German soldiers and he was transported 3,200 kilometers from Switzerland to the Finnish Russian border. Now upon arrival, it was actually a British allied soldier that recognized Lenin and he telegraphed the provisional government and he flat out recommended that they deny entry to him into the country. However, Russia was now a, and I say this with air quotes, democratic state. Um, And as such, like Lenin, who in their view was a Russian citizen, should be allowed to return home. Now, Winston Churchill later said of the matter, the Germans turned upon Russia the most grisly of weapons. They transported Lenin in a sealed truck like a plague bacteria from Switzerland to Russia. So, now why would the Germans go to such lengths to bring Lenin, like an exiled man, back into Russia? The thing is, Lenin was a strong opponent of Russia's involvement in the war. So clever on you, Germany. I think that was a good move on your part. (laughs) All right. So we're going to jump now. We're going to move on to our French allies. So if you recall, the Battle of Vimy Ridge was part of the larger Nivelle Offensive to divert German reserves away from uh, Asni? Assign? Easy. Uh, I'm not sure on that one. I was watching a video and I know how he said it. And then I forgot. It's spelled A-I-S-N-E. So you can Google it if you want to know. (laughs) Um, So the point was, like, from here, the French could launch the main attack of Chemin de Dames with the objective of breaking through the front within a 48-hour period. Now, this attack was a failure. The plan had been leaked to the Germans, allowing them to retreat from the front lines to seek shelter underground during the initial bombardment. And then they were ready to meet the advance of the infantry with machine gun fire. So the French eventually reached the crest, but at the cost of 187,000 men. Now, because of this, Nivelle was sacked on May 15th and replaced by General Henri-Philippe Pétain. Now, his first directive was to suspend all large-scale attacks, but the Elan spirit of the Poilu. I think I said that right, Poilou. This actually translates into the, quote, momentous spirit of the hairy one. And I guess that spirit had been broken.
0: (laughs) (laughs) The name. So who's the hairy one? Is it Neville? No,
1: like the French, the average Frenchman. So I guess in French, like in French, not French, but in France, Poilu is used to describe like the French infantry, um, but it was also kind of a symbol of identity for the men. So they would actually grow out their hair and beards as a like an expression of their masculinity, I guess. Oh. So, yeah. <laughs> okay. So he broke their spirit. They were done. Um, <laughs> they were feeling expendable. Like they had been left as cannon fodder to them, not by the Germans, but by their own commanders. So unlike the British... The French were not given the same reprieve from the front lines and their rations were meager. So if you do remember, the Canadians, like way back, I think it was the Second Battle of Ypres, they were like flat out appalled at the condition of the French built trenches. So think about everything we've discussed from a Canadian's perspective. And now imagine the Canadians complaining about having to come into the French lines. So, you know, it's bad. So what ended up happening in 1917 was that mutinies broke out in 68 divisions and the men began deserting in droves. And I'm talking about about 27,000 of them. Now. Wow. Yeah. Crazy. Like that would scare the
0: Mm.
1: out of me if I was their commander. (laughs) So for the men that were left behind on the front, they were committed to defend their lines, but basically like nothing more. The, the mutiny itself, like it's not, don't think of it as like a, a riot or like a revolution. It's just more of an act of insubordination. So they would do things like, um, f- like fail to salute their officer. They would wear flowers in their lapel. They would resort to maybe vandalism, um, circulate petitions, or, you know, as I said, they would refuse to go to the front. So although Patan was sympathetic to their flight, um, order did have to be restored. I mean, there was a war going on. And from his perspective, it had to be done through forced obedience. Now, thousands of men were court-martialed with over 500 tried and sentenced to death. So, yeah, like, what a way to raise morale (laughs) when the prisoners are, like, down on their luck. Um, But he did kind of recognize this, and he was expecting some blowback from the public, so they only executed somewhere between 26 and 49 of the men.
0: Um, Oh, that's it. That's it. That's that's all. Yeah, just take the worst of them and... Bring him to the gallows. That's fine. Yeah. Um, The remainder were sentenced to prison or they
1: were deported to the colonies.
0: (laughs) Which I was like. The the, colonies? Yeah. What
1: year is that? This doesn't sound right. Well. Wrong war. No. This is what my research (laughs) said. You know, I don't know the specifics, but I wouldn't be surprised if France still had colonies
0: at that point in time. I think they did. I, I think the Philippines, maybe? Could have been. Was um, was one of their colonies. But it is kind of funny to be like, you're going back to the colonies. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like something from Hamilton. Yes.
1: <laughs> um. So, I mean, luckily enough for the French and the Allies, uh, the Germans never caught wind of the anarchy behind the French
0: front lines. So, wow. How much the Germans like had their hands in things and they got their information from the British a lot. Yes. I'm surprised that they didn't pick up on any of that. Yeah, me too. I'm, I'm stunned. Like I I read a a book that said like even their
1: allied counterparts didn't know, but that doesn't seem quite right. I would think the French would relay that information to their allies in case like.
0: You know, it hit the fan, so to speak. So I don't know. I don't know. Pride can be a pretty serious thing. You wouldn't want to be like, hey, guys, sorry, we're not going to show up to this battle because we have no men left. Yeah. I mean, don't get me wrong. I mean, 27,000 is a lot, but they still had hundreds of thousands
1: of men on the front line. Um, Mm -hmm. I don't know. I don't know. It's iffy. I read sources that said Allies knew. Maybe they didn't know. We'll leave it at that. All right, so there's a ton going on. 1917, holy moly.
0: Ooh, what a year.
1: <laughs> what a year indeed. All right, so we're going to jump on over to our Canadian boys and talk about Arthur Curry.
0: Oh, G- I like him. <laughs> so do I. I really do. <laughs> Ashley's got another crush yeah, <laughs> on so. somebody from 100 years ago. <laughs> uh, totally. Uh, Okay, Um, so in
1: June of 1917, this is now two months after the victory of Vimy, Lieutenant General Julian Bing was promoted to commander of the British Third Army. Now, when Bing took command of the Canadian Corps in 1916, he said he was perplexed, referring to the appointment as a stunt. I think we talked about that earlier. Mm -hmm. But uh, he left his command holding... Great respect and admiration for the Canadians, and he honored these men by petitioning Haig to promote a Canadian in his place. Now, to Bing and General Haig, Curry was the obvious choice. Now, of his promotion, Curry wrote No one realizes better than I do the hard task that lies before me in trying to fill the shoes of our late Corps commander, Sir Julian Bing. He was a leader who all loved and to one whom the Corps is very much indebted for his present high state of efficiency. So that's a pretty nice accolades for Julian Bing. Now, Curry's promotion was expedited before the politicians could have their say. And this would ruffle the feathers of our Canadian politicians, including Lord Beaverbrook, Garnet Hughes, And, of course, our good friend, Sam Hughes. (laughs) No, I thought he was gone. Didn't he get fired last time? Oh, my God. So my biggest (laughs) regret of this podcast is not just reading a book about Sam Hughes. Because, like, I'd pick up pieces along the way. And then it's like, why is he still here? So it's true that he's no longer the minister of militia, but he is an MP. Oh, Okay. And as we know, he's got friends in high places. So he's not gone. He's still kicking. Ugh. Anyway, so these men felt that they should, like, receive some sort of, like, concession in exchange for Turner. Um, And that concession would be to appoint Garnett Hughes as First Divisional Commander. Now, Curry refused. So Garnett's track record on the battlefield had been sort of mediocre at best. And he had actually been in England for several months, um, like doing like an administrative role. So Curry kind of commented, like, because tactics are, are changing so rapidly uh, and you had to devise new tactics all the time to meet changing conditions. Um, if you haven't seen service out here, if you've been away for several months, like you're out of date. Like, you're not going to be much use to me. Now, Garnet and Curry were actually friends, um, and he pleaded with him. But Curry said, friendship did not excuse inefficiency. Now, Garnet actually threatened Curry, noted, <laughs> This sounds so high school. I will get you before I'm
0: finished with you. Like, ooh, like burn. A, <laughs> what a cartoon film. Watch out, Curry. <laughs> Did he twist his mustache when he said it too? Yeah. A little grease on the mustache. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Um, But actually, this wasn't really an idle threat um, when you're backed by Sam Hughes. Now, Curry wrote, From the time of my refusal, Sam never ceased to blackguard me to minimize my influence and authority with my own men. The things to which he and his associates...
0: I love that word, This associates,
1: (laughs) uh, restored would bring a blush of shame to the face of every decent citizen of this country. Oh, man. Like, the word that popped into my head was, like, Sam and his, like, cronies. (laughs) Like, (laughs) I don't know.
0: They're all sitting around smoking cigars, drinking whiskey, and insulting people with very flowery language. Totally. <laughs> oh, God.
1: Anyway, um, so Curry moved to establish his headquarters, and it really should come to no surprise to us by this time that he expected initiative from his commanders in overcoming adverse circumstances. His attitude was, don't be satisfied with things as they are, as they can generally be improved upon with initiative, forethought, and endeavor. Now he relied heavily on the expertise of his gunners, like engineers, sappers, the infantry, miners, you name it. And unlike the staunchness of the BEF commanders, as we've seen before, um, and I quote, Curry's mistakes were genuine mistakes of careful judgment. They were not mischances, not the miscarrying of plans due to lack of consideration. And unlike the head commanders in the French army, Curry, as recounted by Victor Oldham, and I quote, earned a reputation among the members of the high command as one of the most careful and humane leaders in the field. But as we know, commanders in chief have to make the tough and sometimes unpopular decisions. And the question became, did Currie have what it takes to lead the Canadians to victory on the battlefield? And we're going to see that test come up in July of 1917. Okay,
0: so that's your little world history. (laughs) (laughs) Little. Little. (laughs) There's a lot going on at this point in the world. It's huge.
1: Like, I can't even imagine incorporating what's going on in the Eastern Front, um, down in, like,
0: Gallipoli and Italy and Turkey. Like,
1: it would be It'd be
0: a big job that I would never want. It'd be That's like
1: a ten sure. a ten-year podcast.
0: <laughs> it's overwhelming
1: for sure. Yes, absolutely. Okay, so now we're gonna jump into the battle of Hill 60. Also referred to the battle of Nice Mezzanese. Mezzanese. That's what we're going. Pick with. one,
0: stick with it, and <laughs>
1: say it confidently, Ash. Mezzanese. Sure. All right, so based on what we've just discussed, one could conclude without fault that the Triple Entente is starting to crumble and that burden of responsibility is going to fall onto the shoulders of the British and their Commonwealth nations. So as ambitious as ever, Haig remained steadfast in his position that a breakthrough of the German lines would be accomplished by the British in Flanders. Like, we're still hung up
0: on this. (sighs) (laughs) They haven't moved anywhere. In, like, three years. But we're gonna do it, guys. Like, it's, like, (laughs) the most, like,
1: fortified part of, like, the Western Front, but I feel
0: like that's where, like, the breakthrough should come. Yeah, that's that's gonna be it. I believe it. (sighs) I had a dream once that that was where we're going to break through with our cavalry. (laughs) Let's do it, guys.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Okay. Um, So in conjunction with this, the British had actually long planned for an amphibious or what we'll say like a water coastal invasion of Belgium. And Haig saw an opportunity for a two-prong attack on the Germans to not only capture the ports, but uses to break through the lines along the Ypres salient. Oh, and on a side note, I was talking to one of my papers who is British, and she just went to Belgium. She said it's pronounced Eep.
0: I think that, I mean, I have no doubt that not everybody says it right.
1: Yeah, but we're going to continue I with think
0: Ypres. Ypres, like Canadians say Ypres, which I know is no excuse. Like if you're Belgium, you're the one who gets to decide.
1: Yeah, so So, um, I don't know. Anyway, I just wanted to point that out. Like, obviously, your
0: pronunciations aren't our strong suit. (laughs) No. (laughs) In fact, you could call it a weakness, I think. (laughs) Yes, you could. So
1: if we backtrack a little bit, in the spring of 1915, Canadian, British, Australian, and New Zealander miners began tunneling underground at Mezzanese Ridge. Now, just for your reference, Mezzanese Ridge is about 11 kilometers south of Ypres. So these tunnels had actually been left unused and it was here that Haig would want to launch his attack. So expanding upon the tunnels in place, the Canadian, British and Australian miners dug 60 to 90 feet down through the blue clay. Now, not only was the clay more stable um, than where, where they had like dug in 1915, um, but it was more difficult for the Germans to d- detect anything at these depths. So meaning, if you remember, we were talking about Vimy Ridge, how there was like these Almost like a tunneling war where you would listen with your geophone to see where the Germans were, where the Canadians were, and then you try to blow each other up. Um, so it was much more difficult to do at these depths. But I mean, of course, you don't want to be too cocky. So they actually built decoy tunnels um, that were dug closer to the surface, which the Germans knew they were digging and they actually blew them up, believing that the threats from below had been neutralized. So when a German raiding party discovered piles of blue clay, it was basically shuffled off as like nothing of importance. So luckily for us, by May of 1917, over 5,000 yards of tunnels standing about six feet high and three foot wide um, were dug, and there were enough room to house 10,000 men.
0: Wow, that's a lot of digging. Oh my gosh, can you imagine? Yikes. It, it'd be so claustrophobic. Yeah, but just even to, like, hide that all, like, I know that they did, you just said that, how they did it, but wow, that's <sighs> such an operation. And clay is heavy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They're poor backs. Yeah. Uh, Okay, so
1: after these tunnels are dug, we're ready to launch an attack. Now, the initial artillery bombardment commenced on May 26. The Royal Flying Corps soared above the German lines to sort of mask the clanking of movements of the British Mark IV tanks, uh, the six pounders and the Lewis guns that were rolled to the front lines. It's so funny to me. Because, like I'm seeing more and more the use of tanks, but to me, I don't think
0: World War I and tanks I just don't uh well, I mean, probably because they were such new technology i mean they they weren't great then, and they were way more like when you think about tanks, you could think about like the Panzers or, and I think the tigers and things like that from World War two like they used them all the time, yeah, but World War I is pretty sparse
1: yeah I mean, and that's what I think about, like like exactly what you just said. I just mm-hmm. think it like it I think it's just funny because I didn't know that tanks were used in World War One. Mm-hmm. but uh,
0: anyway, that's why we're doing this because we're learning. That's right.
1: <laughs> Ricky historians don't know everything, okay. That's right. <laughs> All right, so at three ten am on June the seventh. 19 mines weighing over a million pounds were detonated and this completely stunned German defenses. Then over 100,000 men went over the top to capture the ridge, which helped kind of straighten out parts of the salient. But unfortunately, it just wasn't without loss. There were over 24,000 casualties from a subsequent German attack, but the, ma- the British did manage to hold the line. So from there, they could look and they could see Passchendaele Ridge. Now, just as kind of a side note, mines are not going to be used again in World War One, which is what I've read is a little unusual or unexpected just because they were so impactful. But at the same time, they created such a mess. It was hard
0: to move across the battlefield. So I, I suspect that's why they weren't being used, but. Wow, I didn't know that. That's pretty interesting, actually. Yeah, because they're relatively effective, but. So well, looking... you find other ways, I guess. That's right.
1: All right. So that little lead up battle brings us to the Battle of Passchendaele. So for six weeks, the men held the line, wasting away every opportunity to advance on the passchendaele Staddon Ridge. But I mean, speaking in a matter of practicality, General Hubert Plumer, who was the commanding officer at the time, knew that moving the artillery from Mezzanese to the salient required time. But Haig did not want to give time because we know how anxious Haig is to get moving on things without thinking things through. So he actually replaced Plumer um, with General Hubert Gough. This actually kind of didn't work out for him. Uh, Gough was skeptical that immediate attack was even feasible, and he ended up requesting more time to review the battle plans that had been laid. And then in the end, he kiboshed them. He was just afraid that they were going to further expand into the salient and they didn't want to be further surrounded on three fronts by the Germans. So didn't quite work out there for Haig. Okay, so on a political front, Haig didn't even actually have support from the War Cabinet to continue with an offensive. Now, relying on intelligence from GHQ, Haig appealed to the cabinet to see the optimism and opportunity in their, in their situation. He cautioned that there was waning hope in Germany and it would be revived and time would be gained to replenish food, ammunition and other requirements. In fact, many of the advantages already gained by us would be lost. And this would certainly be realized by and would have a depressing effect on our armies in the field who have made such great efforts to gain them. Now, in contrasting view, Major General George McDonnell, who was the director of military intelligence, warned, it is obvious that offensive operations on our front would offer no chance of success. Now, to MacDonald, there was no doubt that the Germans would pull men from the Russian front and deploy them to the Western front and reinforce an already well fortified defensive position. Now, Prime Minister David Lloyd George was leery of Haig's promotions as well and appealed that, and I quote, the cabinet must regard themselves as trustees. Therefore, it is imperative that before we embark upon a gigantic attack, which must necessarily entail the loss of score of thousands of valuable lives, that we should feel a fair confidence that such an attack has a reasonable chance of succeeding. A mere gamble would be both a folly and a crime." So, with pressure from the Navy to provide greater assistance against the rising power of German U-boats, the Cabinet agreed to Heg's plan, but on the condition that the offensive would be called off, if unsuccessful, within the first stages. So, even though having lost Mezzanese Ridge, the Germans sat confidently looking down upon Gelovo Plateau, watching british preparations for an offensive attack now the front lines actually were sparsely protected at this point in the war um just to avoid losses from like heavy preliminary artillery bombardments so i actually found that kind of interesting they're they're learning
0: Yeah, it makes sense. Like, they're finally picking up on that. Don't have everybody there to get bombed out, especially on the German side, because at Vimy Ridge, they were just decimated. Yeah, absolutely.
1: All right, so now behind Pilkham Bridge was the second line. um, And this marked the front of the battle zone to the third line, which ran along the slopes of Passchendaele Ridge. So what what I'm basically saying here is we have this stereotypical... Um, three trench system. Or do we?
0: Ooh. <laughs> it's
1: getting more complicated. Now, our German friends were busy little beavers and created three additional lines, which they referred to as Flanders 1, 2, and 3. And they built on either side of these lines two well fortified. Say fortresses that were located on the northern and southern edges of this ridge. So we have a total of six lines now. So, I mean, it was kind of inevitable. If the British broke through the line, the salient was going to become more prominent and it would leave the British in a more vulnerable position. Now, scattered along the lines, of course, we're going to see pillboxes and sort of like fortified barn houses. Um, and as we know, the pillboxes have become the bane of existence for the British Army. I mean, not only are they difficult target for the artillery, I, I mean, it really only takes a couple men with machine guns um, to s- stop the advance of soldiers. So it's not, it's, I don't know why this is the place where, where Haig is like, yeah,
0: we're going to push this through. <laughs> Cause he's desperately hoping that since, like, he has been for the past what two years, Ugh. that cavalry cavalry will break through, and this is just the place that he has foretold that it will happen. So he has to make it happen here. You're not wrong. Um, he in the books I've read, I, he's absolutely mentioned the cavalry
1: again. I just didn't bother putting it. In. <laughs> <laughs> Uh so I mean before being replaced by Goff, um, General Herbert Plumer and General Henry Rawlinson, they had actually devised like a two-phase attack. Um, and this plan would allow the soldiers to advance one mile into German, uh like the German second line, and then day two, there would be a pause, followed by an art- artillery bombardment, and then they'd have like this next push. But General Hubert Goff devised a, like pretty aggressive like four stage attack to push the front to the German third line within one day. So, the first is the blue line objective and this is situated along the German front line along Pelkem Bridge. This would um, sort of give British a holding on the Gelovo plateau. So after a very brief, like 30-minute pause, the men would then advance to what they called the Black Line. And this Black Line was on the reverse slopes of Pilcombe Bridge. Then, following a f- about a four-hour break, the men would advance to the German Third Line, also identified as the Green Line. And it's at this point that the divisional commanders would decide the feasibility of advancing to the Red Line. And this red line is situated along the western slopes of Passchendaele Ridge. So in total, we're talking at about an advance of 4.5 kilometers into German occupied territory pretty much within a day. That's pretty lofty. <laughs> no kidding. <laughs> uh, I mean, for men like Goff, time was of the essence and same with Haig, right? They knew that, or I don't know if they knew, but in their opinion, you needed to strike hard and heavy while the iron is hot. But in the opinion of others, men like Goff were so blinded by their quest for victory that they construed these grandiose schemes without due consideration for the practicalities of achieving victory. Now, even Hague Senior Staff Officer Brigadier General John Davison remarked, Experience shows that such action may, and often does, obtain spectacular results for the actual day of operations, but these results are obtained at the expense of such disorganization of the forces employed to render the resumption of the battle under advantageous circumstances at an earlier date highly improbable. That is a mouthful. (laughs) <laughs>
0: so basically, what he's saying is. What he's saying is that, yeah, they did a great job, but it was such a show back here that <laughs> well, there's no way we could have done it sooner. Yeah, like you need time
1: for the artillery to catch up. Like they just can't move at like high speeds to get to where you're going. Like you need time to yeah. advance things forward. Uh, of course, Goff scoffed at Davidson. Uh, as aggressive as his plans may be, uh, to him experience has also shown that conservative advancements fail to fully reap the advantages of their success. And we actually kind of saw this a little bit at Vimy Ridge. If you remember, they were criticized for not pushing further. I, I think it was on to Lens, but again, it was that same art like same argument that Davidson was making, like. Your artillery can't catch up to you. I'm sorry. You need your artillery. But anyway, Goff had said, like, after the first attack, one cannot hope to gain similar results in one attack as long as the enemy can find fresh reserves. I think, therefore, it would be wasteful not to reap all the advantages possible resulting from the first attack. Now, Haig approved Goff's plans, believing that the Germans were on the brink of collapse. But he did advise Goff to provide extra support, like along the Gelvolt Plain. I guess there was a crossing of German strongholds there. Um, Goff decided to ignore this warning. Not, don't know, don't know why. Um, so according to authors Nigel Steele and Peter Hart, uh, by 1917, the commanders were learning. They were learning the importance of preparation. Goff even noted in his records that the general principles for the conduct of the troops in battle were elaborated upon. Models enabled the leaders of the attacking troops to know the ground over which to see advance. We found this method of showing the leaders what they might expect to see, and that what they had to to do was very helpful.
0: Like... (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Really? Oh, my gosh. Sending somebody in knowing Prepared? what they're getting into? Wow. What? I had no idea.
1: <laughs> uh. Captain Thomas Outram recalled that dummy trenches were constructed so that we could familiarize ourselves with the layout of the enemy
0: position. Does this sound familiar to you, Shauna? It does. It sounds exactly like Vimy, where they won. That's right.
1: (laughs) Uh, Anyway, despite the optimism of the commanders, the men in the field had some misgivings about this battle. There had been really no like decisive victories. It was just these battles that turned Ypres into a killing field. So really, why would this battle be any different? So Signaler Sidney Fuller, he wrote, we marched into the old no-man's land, facing Gumcor. Here, much equipment and many steel hel- helmets, some with their hair still adhering to the linings, were lying where they had been left on July 1st, 1916. We passed over the old enemy trenches. These and their barbed wire were still in good condition, much better than our trenches at their best. It is no wonder that our attack failed here. Now um, private Frederick Collins from the Take Corps remembers the apprehension on the field as they entered into the salient. Recalling a conversation he had with a man by the last name of FitzJohn, he recounted, "I didn't want to come here. I don't want to die. I've got two lovely boys and a lovely wife. I want to be with them." The next day, I thought about him. I said, where's Fitz John? They said, he had a direct hit. He got killed. Now, for Lieutenant Huntley Gordon, Ypres struck fear into the heart of men as landmarks were too aptly named by the soldiers that had long since passed. And uh, this is a quote. The chap who decided on the names of these places must have had a morbid mind. It's easy enough to get the wind up without the map making your flesh creep with such names as Hellfire, Hellblast, and Shrapnel Corner. The lunar created landscape with its tortured trees, flooded shell holes, and putrefying carcasses of horses among tangles of barbed wire. Surely this is enough without the implication that shrapnel may be expected to burst over you at any minute. Now signaller Stanley Bradbury remembered the horrible conditions on the front lines. He said, We entered a communication trench. It was very wet and muddy, being for the most part knee deep. The result was that we had to be constantly climbing out of the trench running the top past the block and dropping into the trench again. Each time this occurred, we got splashed up to the eyes with mud and water. We were soon too wet to the skin and everything we carried was caked in mud. In addition, each time a flare or light went up, we had to lie flat and keep perfectly still, whether in mud or water so that we should not be observed. So, If you reflect kind of again, back on the battles we've already covered, there might be certain features that stand out to you. So for example, like the second battle of Ypres, you might picture clouds of rolling gas across the battlefield. Saint El you're probably gonna think about the craters. Um, For Vimy, like I know for me, I think about the tunnel system. But for, for Passchendaele, I want you to think about mud. Now, I know we've talked a lot about the muddy conditions of the trenches and like how men would fall into shell holes and craters filled with water and they would never see be seen again. But this is like nothing compared to the hell of Passchendaele. And this is where we're going to leave off episode one and we're going to jump into the battles in episode two.
0: Wow. All right. Yeah, that's a lot. It's another biggie. <laughs> yeah, I know. Well, they just keep getting bigger, right?
1: Uh, yeah, I mean, I think f- from the psalm forward, they're gonna all be massive.
0: Yeah, for sure. But my question is mm. when are we doing a review on the Passchendaele movie? Yeah, does that need to be a mini sewed? Because I know you've brought it up sporadically throughout. And I, I think I've said my feelings of the movie, but we might have to do like a mini-sode on it because there's only so many Canadian World War One movies. <laughs> I know, right? Um, yeah, we totally should. Maybe we should like watch it.
1: Um, we and could do, have a viewing party. And do a mini-sode to be released. I'm not sure yet.
0: In six months. Because we're going to have a backlog. Yeah. I know. There's so
1: many mini shows I wanted to do, but it's just not feasible. It's just not. Um,
0: And then that too, I wanted to watch 1917. I have not seen that yet. I've been saving it and I want to see it, but I haven't gotten to it. Yeah. I think now's the time. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. Since we're covering 1917, it just, it's all coming together. Yeah. All right, I guess that's on our list of
1: things to do before next episode. All right.
0: <laughs> awesome. All right, thanks for joining us. We are Ashley and Shauna from What About the Canadians. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at What About the Canadians podcast and on our website at WhatAboutTheCanadians.com. Drop us a line, send us a review. We're on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. And we will catch you next time with the rest of Passchendaele.